Well, if you're expecting a homily about the Trinity today, here it is. The Trinity is a mystery. The end. <laughs> a couple of weeks ago, I told you that I wanted you to ask me questions and that you should email them to me and that eventually I would answer them in a homily. Well, today is that day. So I am answering the, the questions that I've received over the past few weeks, and I did this at uh, the other parish cluster parishes two weeks ago, um, but this is completely different than that homily. So if you were there and heard me already do it, or you listened to the online version or whatever, don't worry, you're in for a different homily. <coughs> Secondly, this is not my opinion. I am just giving you the teachings of the church on the questions that I have been asked. There is one part that is my opinion, but you'll clearly know what that part is. So, here we go. The answers to the questions that you as parishioners of the cluster have asked. Question. Does purgatory exist in Christianity? Well, no. But also yes. So, in Christianity, the way the question was worded, I assume to mean Protestantism. In that case, no. Purgatory does not exist. They don't believe in it. But in Catholicism, the original, yes. Yes, it does. So before we talk about purgatory, we need to back up and talk about when someone dies. When an individual dies, they go before the Lord, and they experience what is called the particular judgment. This judgment is when the Lord Almighty judges them, whether they will end up in heaven or hell. Now, caveat to this judgment, we are the one that makes the choice. How do we do that? Through the choices we've made in life. Anyway, this is different than the second coming when the Lord will come and judge the living and the dead. So the result of the particular judgment for each individual is one of two things. You either end up in heaven or you go to hell. But Father Dan, you just said that purgatory exists. Yes, I did. Thank you for noticing. As I was saying, the only place that your immortal soul will end up forever is either heaven or hell. Now, sometimes it occurs that a soul may be so disconnected from sin during life that there needs to be no purification time before entering into the glories of heaven. These people are called saints. Most of us, however, need to have a time of purification before we are ready to enter heaven. Think of it this way. It's like if your family gets together for Thanksgiving and every year you play a big football game right before dinner. Now, let's say the weather is like it is today, quite rainy, so you get very dirty and muddy. So you get to the front door, and before you get inside the house, your mother says, absolutely not, go clean yourself off before you come to my table. This is the same thing as heaven. Some of us are still attached to sin in a way that we need to be purified from, and I say some, but I mean most, are, need to be purified from the attachment to sin that we have. This is why purgatory exists. After the particular judgment, if a soul ends up in purgatory, it is for a limited time, although time after you die is really just a made-up thing that doesn't exist, you just exist, but you're outside of time, it's like the Trinity, it's a mystery. Anyway, you need this time of purification. How long do you spend there? That's up to the individual and God's judgment. But what is your job when you get there? That's easy. It's to pray for all of the souls still on earth. The souls in purgatory cannot pray for themselves, but they rely solely on our prayers to get them to heaven, which is why we pray almost every Mass for our beloved dead. Now, if one gets to heaven, as I said, there is a sweet consolation because you are assured that you are going to heaven. There is no person or soul that has spent any time in purgatory that eventually goes to hell. Question. 
I would like to know why kneelers have been removed from so many churches, and the practice of kneeling at Mass seems to be disfavored. Well, at some point during the last 60 years since Vatican II happened, the writings of Vatican II have been kind of misinterpreted by people and gotten away from the original intent of the authors. Now, part of the liturgical abuses that exist are that some churches did things like get rid of the kneelers. Since 1962, whether it was the pastor who made the decision by himself or the parish council with the pastor's acquiescence, some churches have had them removed or were built entirely without them. If this is something you would like to see changed, please join the parish council and affect change in that way. Now we get into the youth group portion, where the youth group got together and sent me about five or six questions. Question, why can't women be priests? Answer, why can't men have babies? We just aren't made for it. So put it this way. Jesus loved everyone equally, right? Except he didn't. He loved one person much more than everyone else. We know this because he picked that one person to be his mother and the co-redemptrix of salvation. He loved Mary more than every woman that has ever existed and every woman that will ever exist. And he loves her more than every, every one of us. If Jesus did not pick his own mother to be part of his priesthood, then could it be possible that there is something inherent about the priesthood that is particular to being a man. Now, this does not mean that women are in any way less because they cannot be priests. It just means we are different. We are not the same in equality. We are the same in dignity. There is something very different about being a man than there is about being a woman, and equally wonderful, but different. So, saying women cannot be priests because they are less is heresy. But if I were to get mad that my body could not get pregnant and have a baby, this would be a little ridiculous. Why? Because as I said, I am not made for it. There is something beautiful about women being able to be the progenitors of life. It's something only they can do. But again, this does not mean that I am somehow less as a man because I cannot do the same thing. Now, in my homily last night, some, some people, I'm told it's about three, heard me say this and thought what I was saying is that women have babies, therefore they cannot be priests. This is not at all what I'm saying. I am using what's known as an analogy. It's not perfect, but it is kind of telling that women are made for different things than men are. Again, equal in dignity, not equal in equality. It doesn't mean that either one is less, but they were made specifically for complementarity. There's also the argument that men are after Christ, or I'm sorry, men are priests after Christ, and we become, in the sacraments, another Christ, meaning alter Christus. There is no way that a woman can become another Christ if she is not like Christ was. Next question, what else are priests allowed to do other than pray and go to Mass? Answer, anything that's not a sin or a crime. Question, how are we as Catholics supposed to treat people who identify as LGBTQ and can they go to church? Yes, yes they can. Now here's how we're supposed to treat them, with love. How is it that hard? Come on, we're supposed to treat everyone with love. It should be a very easy answer, but I'll elucidate. 
The Catechism says in paragraph 2358, the number of men and women who have deep-seated homosexual tendencies is not negligible, meaning the church has no idea how many people deal with this problem. But it's not a small number. It continues, they do not choose their homosexual condition. For most of them, it is a trial. They must be accepted with respect, compassion, and sensitivity. Every sign of unjust discrimination in their regard should be avoided. These persons are called to fulfill God's will in their lives, and if they are Christians, to unite the sacrifice of the Lord's cross, these difficulties that they encounter from their condition. So like I said, of course they can come to church. In fact, everyone is welcome to church. In fact, I'm going to kind of chide you a little bit because I was just at St. Mary's and they totally had visitors. Where are your visitors? Hmm? Now we're fully open, I expect visitors. A lot of them. So, we should be bringing people to church. Does that mean they have to be perfect? Absolutely not. As Pope Francis said, we're a field hospital for sinners. But if you come to church, we ask that regardless of who you are or how you identify, that you conform your life to the gospel and repent of any sin that you may have in your life. Basically, if you want to play our game, you have to play by our rules. So, if you are a priest, religious sister, deal with same-sex attraction, or are unmarried, the church asks you to live in chastity proper to your state in life. Question, what is the Catholic Church's teaching slash ruling on same-sex-oriented Catholic couples living together chastely, i.e. as siblings in the same house, that are strong in their faith, attend Mass regularly, and follow Catholic teaching? Kind of the same answer I just gave you. We ask that anyone who is not married in a heterosexual marriage blessed by the church to live in chastity. Question, can you be a witness to civil unions under the Pope's new guidelines? Well, I have no idea what these new guidelines are because recently, very recently, the Holy Father came out and said that priests may not bless civil unions of same-sex couples. Also, as Catholics, we are only supposed to support traditional marriages. Being in attendance of a civil union for a same-sex couple would implicitly imply that the attendee supports marriage other than that between one man and one woman for the whole of life. Question, what is the difference between a priest who is a parish priest and one who joins a monastery or a Catholic order? There are priests who are part of religious orders, such as the Franciscans and the Dominicans, etc., who choose to serve the Lord through their priesthood with a specific charism or ministry. They are the same type of priest as I am, but focus their ministry in a different way. Their territory extends to everywhere in the world that their charism or ministry might be needed. A diocesan priest like myself is one who serves at the pleasure of the bishop of that specific diocese. We may not be moved outside of that diocese unless released for specific ministry for a time determined by the local ordinary. Question, what should I do if I'm thinking I want to be a priest? Well, first, make sure you're a man. Second, make an appointment to come talk to me. Question, why do priests take off their shoes for the Good Friday service? Answer, because it goes back to scripture. With Moses standing before the burning bush, when God tells him to take off his shoes, for he is standing on holy ground. The veneration of the cross is the realization of the vehicle of our salvation, and therefore the reverence shown to it is so grave that one should take off their shoes because they are standing on holy ground in front of a depiction of the way the Lord chose to redeem all of humanity. Question. 
is the Hail Mary biblical, or is this prayer slash devotion created by the Catholic Church? Well, technically, all of the prayers in the Catholic faith are made up by the Catholic Church. They didn't exist before the Church existed, but I digress. So the Hail Mary is, in fact, entirely scriptural. Hail Mary, full of grace, is Luke chapter 1, verse 28, the angel to the Virgin Mary at the Annunciation. Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, is Luke chapter 1, verse 41 and 42, when Elizabeth greets Mary. Pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death, is James chapter 5, verse 16. If a couple has a child and does not teach him about God or any religion, and the child dies, what would happen to him when they go to be judged? Well, first, let's take the blame entirely off the parents. Let's just say in this hypothetical situation that the child dies before they are even able to be taught about religion. If a child dies in utero, and the parents would have gotten the child baptized had they been born, then we believe that the amniotic fluid serves as the waters of baptism, and the child has what is called a baptism by desire, the parents' desire for the child to be baptized. Okay, different scenario. Let's say the child is actually carried to term and is baptized, but there's a problem and perishes shortly after birth, say any time between one day and a few years old. That child, who has been baptized, is the closest thing to the Virgin Mary that we will ever experience. Think about it. The Virgin Mary was the only person who was not born with original sin and never committed personal sin in her life. A child, once baptized, who is not old enough to commit personal sin and has had their original sin taken away, is the closest thing that we will ever know to that perfect humanity. So if a child dies in this time period and they have not committed any personal sin, what exactly is there for the Lord to judge harshly? The church says that the age of reason, the age when one can actually know what sin is and choose it freely, is around the age of seven. This can be younger if a child is more advanced or older if they are not. But ultimately, in life and death, we leave all judgment to the Lord and know that God's greatest attribute is his mercy. Question. What, or the church says Jesus will come back to judge the living and the dead. How can he judge the dead when they have been judged by him in heaven? So again, we need to make a distinction between the particular and the second coming. The particular judgment and the second coming. First of all, the Lord does not see time as we see it. The Lord created time. And second of all, he sees all of time as the current present before him. Anything that has ever happened or will ever happen in the history of time and space is always before him in an ever-present reality. Therefore, his salvific action of the cross did redeem all the sins that in our perspective were committed in the past and have yet to be committed. But that doesn't mean that our lives are predestined. It means that God sees all of the possibilities of every single choice that we could ever make through the entirety of our life in the present. So when he comes to judge the living and the dead, this refers specifically to his second coming. We have already discussed the particular judgment that happens when a person dies, but then he comes again to create a new heaven and a new earth, as St. Paul says, and he judges the sheep and the goats, as we read in the Gospel. Now, this doesn't mean that if you have undergone the particular judgment and have been enjoying heaven for a million years, again, time is made up, but I'm using an analogy, it doesn't mean that if you have been in heaven, that at the second coming there's a chance you'll end up in hell. 
It means once you have had the particular judgment, you are there forever, no matter what. But what happens at the second coming is that we will know all of our choices in life and how it affected all of time and space and salvation history in ways that we never knew before. Question, why are there two readings prior to the gospel reading and then the homily? Well, that really just depends on the Mass you're going to. There are two readings at daily Mass, the first reading and the responsorial psalm. Then three readings before the Gospel on Sundays and feast days. And on other days, like Pentecost or the Easter Vigil, the option exists to have up to seven readings before the Gospel. Aren't you glad we don't do that every Sunday? Question, why do, Catholics, or why do Catholic Bibles have 73 books? What is the difference between the Catholic Bible and the Protestant Bible, and why? It's very simple. In the year 419, at the Council of Carthage, the Church Fathers at that time decided to codify what was divinely inspired scripture and what was just well-intentioned writing by others, meaning that they came up with 73 books, 46 of the Old Testament and 27 of the New, that they believed to be directly inspired by the Holy Spirit for the edification of souls. Now, sometime around the year 1500, when a Catholic priest known as Martin Luther started to get a little crazy in Germany, he had a particular theology that he liked and wanted to propagate. So, he removed all of the books that explicitly went against his theology, which means that he removed seven books that he did not like. This is why the mainline Protestant Bible only has 66 books. Because at one point, a well-intentioned but crazy Catholic priest made a bad choice. Kind of like the removal of kneelers in some churches. Question, what is righteous anger? And how is it justified? Anger is an emotion which is supposed to keep us safe. The true meaning of anger is that it is in a reaction to a perceived threat, either real or imagined, that allows us to fight or flight. Anger as a virtue allows us to fight against sin. We should use our righteous anger, when it is in fact righteous, to fight against sin, protect those who are in danger, and spur us on to virtuous action. The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God because the anger of man is more concerned with man rather than God. So when anger only gets us to sin, it is no longer righteous. Being angry and not sinning requires the discernment of constant practice because so much of our anger is rooted in our prideful, sinful, and selfish nature. Question. Is it a sin to remove any life support if there is no brain function anymore or if the person is using a ventilator? Assuming that there is no medical directive and the family needs to decide, what is the best course of action? Well, the church has always and will always teach about the sanctity of life. But be very clear. There is a difference between allowing someone to die naturally and actively speeding up their death. If someone may be kept alive by ordinary means, which means that they can be sustained by only food and hydration, then we are, we are supposed to allow them to live. If someone would naturally die if we remove life support devices, we are not killing them. We are allowing them to naturally die. These situations are always very nuanced and very difficult in the moment. But like I said, there is a difference between allowing someone to die naturally and actively speeding up their death. The Terry Schiavo case from a few years ago is a case where she was actively starved to death. 
she would have continued to live by just receiving tube feeding and hydration, which is the same as you or I. But they actively stopped feeding her and giving her water and allowed her to anguish and starve to death. If you have any questions regarding specific cases about your family, please come talk to one of the priests in the cluster. Question, what happens if your husband won't do the things they need to do to have your marriage recognized in the church? However, you have done everything to become a Catholic and are in good standing with the church. What does this mean for you? This is oddly specific. That's what it means. It means this is not really a case of Catholic social teaching at large, but here's what I will say. If one does not want to have their marriage reconciled in the church, then the option exists to live as brother and sister in chastity until such time as that marriage is reconciled with the church, and you are welcome to come receive communion. Question, how does it feel to be a young priest in the knowledge of the molestation scandals of the church's history? Well, personally, I think this is kind of a little ridiculous of a question, but let me answer it with another question. How does it feel to be a Catholic with knowledge of the molestation scandals? There's your answer. Question, how can you defend the priests that did some of the most horrific things to children and get to hide behind the cloak of the church instead of the law? Who ever said that I defended them? In what way specifically did I personally ever defend anyone of any wrongdoing or sinful behavior? So again, this question in its inception is a little silly, but I'll say this. If anyone, cleric or lay, commits any crime, they should be handed over to lawful authority. Now, this next part isn't really a question, but the person did include it in their question email, so I feel a little justified in answering it. It says, quote, Your very first homily, I can honestly say that I listened to about two minutes before I had to turn it off. Now, maybe I shouldn't have done that, but I did, and I know first impressions stick. Mother's Day gave me a slightly different impression of you, one that is not stuck on, one that is more like the rest of us, end quote. Well, that's fair. That is certainly their opinion. And here's the thing. As a 34-year-old, I fully understand that not everyone is going to like me. I may, in fact, not be everyone's cup of tea. That being said, let me make one thing very clear about being a priest. I am not here to be your friend. I am here as your priest. I am here as the one who has been delegated by the bishop to provide the sacraments for you and to help you attune your moral compass to the will of the Lord in your life. Now that doesn't mean that I don't want to be your friend. It doesn't mean that we can't be friends. But it does mean that I'm not here to be your friend. So whether you like me or not, doesn't affect me. I am here not to have you like me, but for the betterment of your souls. Some of the best teachers and mentors that I have ever had have been men and women that I did not like, but I respect it. So if you like me, wonderful. If you don't, awesome. <laughs> I will be here and serve you and serve at the pleasure of the bishop until such time as he determines that I should no longer be here. If your relationship with Jesus is dependent on the personality of an individual priest who will probably be transferred in a few years, then I suggest you reevaluate your relationship with Jesus. Question, please explain critical race theory, oh sorry, please explain why critical race theory is a dangerous teaching. 
Critical race theory asserts that America's legal framework is inherently racist and that race itself, instead of being biologically grounded and natural, is a socially constructed concept that is used by white people to further their economic and political interests at the expense of people of color. There are aspects of critical race theory about which Catholics and non-Catholics can absolutely agree, including the importance of confronting racism, assisting the poor and underprivileged, addressing social and economic inequalities, and fighting human exploitation. These are all core elements of established Catholic social teaching and should already be addressed in Catholic education without embracing critical race theory. Catholic education is also Christocentric and based on the gospel message of unity and communion, which Jesus taught when he said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God, which is Matthew 5, 9. And blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy, Matthew 5, 7. Critical race theory harms the unity of all people that Jesus prayed for when he said that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, John 17, 21. St. Paul taught this in Ephesians 4, uh, 3 through 6, when he said, Strive to preserve the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace, one body and one spirit, as you were also called to the one hope of your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. Catholic social teaching calls on each Christian to care for victims regardless of personal responsibility for the sins committed, and critical race theory proposes reparations for past injustices. This complex request must be handled carefully in order to ensure that new injustices are not committed in the process of attempting to right a past wrong. The restoration of a proper order of equality and dignity of persons cannot indiscriminately target people based on the power they hold, the wealth they possess, their race, their nationality or place of birth, their religion, their family relationship, or friendship. While critical race theory may appear to be a timely theory that corrects societal wrongs through equity, some of its key underlying assumptions are not in harmony with Catholic teaching. Catholic educators teaching authentic Catholic moral and social teaching, as well as the practice of Christian charity, should not need to appropriate elements of critical race theory, but instead should confidently retain the core influence of the gospel in all of their efforts to educate and form young people. Question, can Catholics support Black Lives Matter? Answer, the Black Lives Matter Global Network Foundation promotes LGBT ideology and opposes the nuclear family. The group's platform aims to, quote, dismantle cisgender privilege and, quote, disrupt the Western prescribed nuclear family structure. Quote, we foster a queer affirming network. When we gather, we do so with the intention of freeing ourselves from the tight grip of heteronormative thinking. End quote. The group's website says, Black Lives Matter should be distinguished from the broader social movement for racial justice, says Deacon Harold Burke Sivers, a black Catholic deacon of the Diocese of Portland, Oregon, author and co-host of EWTN's Morning Radio, I'm sorry, Morning Glory radio show. He says, marching to protest the inequalitable treatment of black people by those in authority is a good thing. However, 
the policies espoused by the Black Lives Matter organization on family and sexuality constitute a radical feminist agenda disguised as a movement for Black Lives Matter, he says. No Catholic can support the national organization whatsoever, he added. Question. The church's position against artificial birth control appears to contribute to overpopulation, resulting in poverty and malnutrition, especially in other parts of the world. This increase in population also requires destruction of forests and grasslands, which is detrimental to the environment. Therefore, isn't the church's stance on birth control contradictory to its position towards addressing environmental issues? No. You want more of an answer? All right, I'll give you one. But no. First, we need to determine if the world is in fact overpopulated and what that means. Is it overpopulated or is it overcrowded in some places? LA, New York, Chicago, these places experience overcrowding, meaning a large number of people living in a small area. That does not mean that the earth itself is overpopulated, meaning we have more resources, I'm sorry, we have more people than resources to sustain life. In North Dakota, there are more cows than people. That doesn't sound overpopulated to me. But next we need to determine if a hierarchy of needs exists. Is the right to life a bigger issue than environmental issues? Yes, yes it is. You cannot ever make the lame claim that to help the environment we should legalize or support the killing of babies or that the church's stance on contraception needs to change. Next, if you actually look at the numbers, the world is in a negative population growth. We are not replacing the people we need in order to have those people that actually exist now taken care of when they get older. The world on average is having less children, not more. The world population hit 2 billion persons in 1927. It increased to 3 billion persons in 1959. Almost at the exact same time, the world life expectancy reached 50 years of age. As lifespans continue to lengthen, population numbers continued to grow. The world population quickly added another billion, and the world hit 4 billion people by the year 1974, even though the average world fertility rate fell from about 5.0 to 3.9 children over the same period of time. In fact, by population and resource data available, everyone in the world, all 7 billion of us, could actually fit standing shoulder to shoulder inside the state of Texas. Next, if we agreed that the world was overpopulated, which we don't, we would also have to look at the way that population has historically been controlled by governments. It violates human rights to have population control. Population control is often violent, violating a woman's bodily dignity. Population control is coercive, violating a person's will. Population control is unscrupulously manipulative, violating a person's right to informed consent and a couple's right to freely decide upon their desired family size. Now, this homily has been long enough, I agree with you. So if you would like to read the in-depth research and get more facts about population research, I invite you to visit the Population Research Institute and see what they have to say.